never know when to start with a snow, slow clap. You don't know <laughs> what the timing on that is. So, Well, it's a um, privilege to be here with you guys. Uh, I can't think of a, another place I'd rather be uh, for this week. And I want to commend you for the decisions each of you made to uh, carve out the time, spend the money um, to be here. Um, what I've seen in my life is decisions like this in my own life God has used to... Um, well, to be a bridge to the future. And um, you guys have, have, have invested wisely, and I commend you for deciding to do this. I wanted to mention, too, um, my wife and I celebrated our 29th anniversary this past Sunday. So we, uh, yeah. so we, we appreciate the fact that all of you gathered uh, to celebrate this week with us. It was really meaningful for us that you did that. Let me, uh, let me pray again, and then we'll, we'll dive in here. Moses said it, and then Jesus said it, and tonight, Father, we say the exact same thing. We do not live on bread alone, but on every single word that proceeds from your mouth. We cannot deny our, our, our body's dependence on food, but very often um, we have ignored or forgotten our utter and total dependence on your words. And we gather tonight uh, because we... We recognize the fact that we need you to speak to us. We don't need to hear from me. We need to hear from you. And our future, our eternity will be influenced, and the people we influence will be influenced by your words. So, Father, we thank you for the great lengths that you have gone to to reveal yourself to us. We could have only known general outlines of your presence, your power, your majesty, but we, we would not have known what we needed to know to relate to you. There would be no chance to, to know what you want us to do. No way could we have ever made our relationship right with you. And so your words, quite literally, are life to us. And so we ask that you would speak. And we put ourselves in a position of attentiveness and a decision to do what it is you tell us to do tonight. Because if we just listen to these words and don't do them, then, well, then it's, it's a waste of our time. So speak to us now, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. So the theme of this week is right there on the wall. It's more to this life. Um, I think it's pretty obvious what that means. Um, our life is about more than well, graduating from college, it's about more than getting a good job. It's about more than making money. It's about more than getting married. It's about more than having kids. It's about more than buying stuff. It's about more than traveling the world. It's, it's about more than watching our kids get married. It's about more than having grandkids. It's about more than making enough money to retire. It's about more than enjoying retirement. And it's about more than just dying. You take all the components that make up a normal life, and you draw the bottom line, and you add all those things up. What we're saying in this theme is the purpose of our life is much more than the sum of all of those individual parts. And if we just simply move through those stages of life and try to add more elements into that equation, and then draw the, the bottom line and put the equal sign there, and we, we haven't figured out that 
that God has a purpose for all of those parts, then it's a, it's a tragic sum. It's, it's a wasted um, life. And God created us um, for more than just living and moving through this life. But most people that we encounter are simply moving through the phases and stages and experiences of life, um, wanting to believe that there is something more to this life than their current set of circumstances, but not being able to figure out really what that is. And what I want to address in the next four sessions is why specifically is there more to this life? Because if there's more to this life just because we want there to be more, well, that's, that's not going to be enough. Or because we feel as if there should be more, that's, that doesn't mean that there is more. So I want to talk about why, in fact, there is more to this life than those individual components. And I want to use the book of 2 Corinthians to... Um, well, to be the source material for the reasons why. I wish we had the time to go through each chapter, but I'm just going to highlight four different chapters in this book. And I encourage you at some point to go back and read through the rest of 2 Corinthians. But if I were to put a title over the book of 2 Corinthians, um, a theme, uh, it would be characterized, I think, by these three words. God wants you. And I've created a little graphic. I haven't. We had our graphic artists do this, create a little graphic, uh, because I know some of you are visual learners. And so if you don't remember these words, maybe you'll remember this image uh, at some point. And so I, I want to paint this image a little more firmly in your mind than just on the screen. I want you to imagine yourself in a, uh, a sea of humanity, a large crowd, maybe you know, a football game, um, packed beach, some, something large, where you're surrounded by thousands of people. And let's say it is a football game, and all of a sudden there's a break in the action because everyone begins to notice, look up, and they begin to notice a hand descending out of the heavens. And it's the hand of God, and no one's ever seen this before. And so at first everyone's scared and wondering, you know, are lightning bolts going to begin to fall from this hand, and what does this mean? And so in the confusion and the awe as everyone's looking at this hand descend from heaven, pretty soon it kind of makes it about eye level with everyone. And the finger from the hand begins to extend, much like this is right here. And it begins to kind of scan around. And again, everyone's wondering, you know, which section is going to get fried? What, what's going to happen here? And pretty soon, you notice that the finger of God's hand is centered on your section, and it begins to move in. And it doesn't take you very long to realize it's pointing straight at me. And then you hear the voice of God say these words, I want you. Now, if you were to hear those words and see that image, that would change your life forever. I mean, everything from that point on would be different. It wouldn't matter anymore whatever you thought about yourself. It wouldn't matter whatever anyone else thought about you. It wouldn't matter how successful you ever became or did not become. Uh, really, all of the details of your life would, would just kind of fade into the background in the middle of the realization that the creator of heaven and earth has extended his hand and pointed straight at you and said, you're exactly what I want. You're the one I'm looking for. I want, I want a real relationship with you. And then over time, you begin to discover that it's, it's not just only a relationship, but there's, there's purpose behind this relationship. 
not just a hangout together, buddy-buddy thing, although there's, that's a part of it, that God himself wants you to play a vital role in what he's doing in this world. Well, what is he doing? Quite simply put, God has mounted the largest search and rescue effort of all time. Those of you who live in Southern California, you know the news reports every once in a while someone goes on a hike and gets lost up, up in the woods, you know, up in the mountains, and, and they mount a search and rescue effort. And I remember one that, you know, a few years ago that took a long time, and one of the goofy reporters asked, silly questions reporters ask, and that is, well, how long are you going to do this? And he said, until we find them. <laughs> now, if I'm lost up in the mountains, I, I, I don't want it to be like a 24-hour window, and then they give up on me. I mean, search until you find me. And this is God's approach. It's a search and rescue mission. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. We're going to talk about chapter 1 primarily tonight, but I want you to, to see this first. Because this is, um, well, I think this is a central passage in the entire book of 2 Corinthians. Now, you need to fix this in your mind for the other chapters to, to fall in place. <clears throat> it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. A, a brand new beginning. That, that moment Everything has changed. The old is gone, the new has come. Now all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, this is amazing, gave us the ministry or the job of reconciliation. What's that? Well, the ministry of reconciliation is this, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And here's another shocking statement of this passage. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So the, the central purpose of God in this world right now is the search and rescue of people who are far from him, whose sins are still in the way of a relationship with God, the one who loves them and created them. And, and what he said is he hasn't just said, look, I'll give you guys 30 days to see if you can get this message right. He, he has committed to us the message. What that means is, it's been given to us to tell people this. I can see if God would cut us in on maybe 10% of the message job, but to commit the whole ball of wax to us? I mean, that's, honestly, that's quite stunning to me. So what that means is if we don't get involved in this, then people just don't know. They don't, they don't, they don't find out about this stuff. So we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So this is the central kind of idea in the book of 2 Corinthians. And the rest of the book is how we go about doing this, partnering with God in his grand search and rescue mission. So let me put this passage kind of in a, another way in this, you know, more to this life kind of way. Whatever your major is now, whatever job you get later, whoever you do or don't marry, however many kids you do or don't have, however much money you do or don't make, none of these things are the point of your life. All of these things and the other details of your life, they are just set pieces on the stage of what God is doing. I think Dan and Pat have done such a great job of describing that God is writing a story, and he's writing a story with your life. I used to think growing up, you know, when Revelation talked about the book of life, I used to think of it kind of as a phone book. 
know, the book of life is, contains the names of those who are part of the kingdom of God who belong to Christ. So I used to think that it was just some big phone book. And, you'd, you know, for me, you'd look under the U's and, am I in there or am I not in there? But over time, as I look at that passage, I, I think it's, it's more of a storybook than a phone book. And the exciting thing is God's not just going to put my name in there. I get, I get some pages in this eternal story that he, he's writing. And I, I'm, I'm definitely not the star. But I get a bit part in the, in the book of life. I mean, nothing greater could be said about a life. But what we tend to do is we tend to get focused on the set pieces around us. The, the things of our life and the details of our life. And we, we forget, no, no, that's not the story. That's, those are the props. Those, those are the set pieces to the story. The story is this this theme of God reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And so what that means is either I am or I am not reconciled. If I'm not reconciled, then the storyline is about God pursuing me. If I am reconciled, then all of a sudden, in that instance, I, become, I take on a different role. I have a different character position in that story. I now become a part of what God is doing to reach the people around me. And it's a great tragedy. I mean, imagine if you go to watch a play and one of the main characters suddenly becomes enamored with some piece on the set and starts you know, fixating on the set and they forget their lines, they forget the plot, they forget the point of the story. I mean, it ruins the whole thing. That's what we tend to do. We, we tend to get fixated on some, some passing piece in our life. We forget no, that this is just the context in which the real stuff the real story is, is taking place. Now, given who God is and who we are, I think it's pretty amazing that he would have any real interest in us for the job of being his ambassador. I mean, if I was, if I was God and I was, you know, hiring ambassadors, I don't know that I'd hire me. I don't think I'd hire some of you. <laughs> and definitely, he doesn't need us to do this job. I mean, he's God. I think, in fact, a strong case could be made that we're probably more trouble than we're worth. But that's not at all how God sees it. He wants us. And, of course, the big question is why? You know, was no one else available? Have things gotten that desperate that we're kind of all that's left in what God is doing in this world? No. I want to show you a picture and see how many of you recognize this. This is a from a couple seasons ago. Does anybody recognize what this picture represents? What is it? Okay, I heard three yes. What is it? I'm hearing S's. I don't hear anything. Sadness? Okay, I'll help you. Yeah. This, two seasons ago, the NFL uh, refs went on strike. And so there were replacement refs. And the replacement ref period ended with this call. It was a Monday night football game, Green Bay Packers at Seattle. Um, and you can see one ref here signaling, this is the end of the you know, fourth quarter, zero, you know, time has run out. One ref signals, touchdown. The other ref signals, no, touchdown. <laughs> and so the whole game was ruined by the fact that these refs couldn't get the call right. 
and Green Bay lost the game because of a blown call. Well, I, I really felt for these, these refs. I mean, they, they, were, they were plan B refs for sure. I mean, they were high school and Division III college refs that were doing the best they could in a difficult situation. They, they were clearly in over their collective heads. I mean, if you watch any of those games, you saw them over and over again look at each other like, oh, you know, they, they, didn't, they really didn't know what they were doing. I mean, imagine you're a high school ref and all of a sudden you're, you're officiating an NFL game. I mean, I, I felt for these guys. I mean, people got mad at them, but I really, I really felt for them. I mean, they were doing the best they could. Now, the reason I show you this is because one look at us, and I think you could conclude the same thing about us. We must be plan B. We are in over our collective heads when it comes to helping people reconcile their life to God. I mean, that's a, that's a huge task. We're doing the best we can, but are we really what God wants? Well, the point I'm going to make tonight, well, actually, 2 Corinthians is going to make tonight, chapter 1, is we are exactly what God wants for this. 2 Corinthians is the second letter that Paul wrote to the church that he planted in the city of Corinth. That's why it's called 2 Corinthians. In the first letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul, it was a pretty hard letter because Paul had to confront a number of things that had, well, gone off the rails. These folks were first-generation Christ followers, um, there was a lot to learn. Corinth was a particularly, um, well, sinful city. So there were a lot of patterns that had made their way into the church, and Paul had to write pretty strongly about what it meant to follow Christ and addressing some of the problems. And so in the first letter, I would imagine if you were to read the first letter as a member of that church, you'd probably feel like a failure. So in the second letter, Paul writes to tell them that they really are what God wants. Now imagine the shock. Me? God wants me? Why would he want me? Surely there are many that are more qualified. I have thought that about myself many times. Many times, you know, I speak most Sunday mornings, and many times before I get up to speak, I almost, I try not to do it visibly because it's not good for people to see, but I almost just shake my head. It's like, I, 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 I can't believe I'm the one that's going to stand up and talk to this group. I mean, there's got to be someone else that would be better at this. And I'm sure that thought's crossed your mind, maybe not with speaking, or, but other things where you thought you're just shaking your head at yourself. I mean, just think about it. If you applied for the job of God's coworker, <laughs> what, would you, what would you put on your resume? And how, would you, how would you make your case? You know, you, you're learning about interviews. You're supposed to go in confidently. But, what, I mean, what would you... <laughs> What, what card would you play? Would you maybe, you know, you've got a good GPA. Would you make sure that that was featured predominantly on your resume? God, I'm, I'm pretty smart. <laughs> well, how, how is that going to help God? I mean, he, maybe you're a physics major. Well, he created physics. Okay, so he, <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't need any help in the physics department or any other of the sciences. Maybe, maybe it's your work experience. You've had really good work experience. Well, you see, God is eternal, so he doesn't, he doesn't need more experience on his team in order to fill out what needs to be done. Well, obviously, you know better than to put your morality on there about what a good person you are, okay? I mean, God's holy. Truth be known, if it wasn't for his mercy, there, there, there couldn't even be a conversation or a chance of a conversation with him. 
I mean, God is not looking for you to raise the moral standard there. So again, why us? What do we have to offer that can be of any real use in accomplishing what God is up to in the world? In chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul lists three. I want to share these with you this evening. First is this. God wants to use your pain. Probably didn't occur to you to put that on your resume. I've gone through some hard things. But that's what God wants. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. When we hurt, God is moved by our pain. And so he moves to comfort us in all of our troubles. How how specifically does he do that? Well, there's many facets to how he does this. We could spend quite a bit of time on that, but... One of the ways that he comforts us is he sends people to represent his comfort. He sends a person to say something that's kind and helpful. Another person to maybe bring a meal or someone just to sit with us or someone to put a hand on a shoulder and pray with us or someone to hug us. You see, God God is a spirit. He doesn't have physical arms to hug us with. So he partners with you and me to do these kinds of things. We can't see his face, so he sends us to reflect his face to someone else. And if you've experienced compassion from someone, what this says is the origin of that was God. He is the father of compassion. He's the author of this. Every form of compassion are his children. It's his idea. He's the one that all compassion comes from. So let me ask you this. Who would best be qualified to bring God's love and comfort to those who are in pain. Clearly those who have been right where they are now. Those who have been comforted by God and know by experience what is helpful and what isn't. Those who have been trained through personal pain. Nineteen years ago, my wife got pregnant with our third child. We were all excited and and we're in the fifth month of pregnancy, and so by that time, you kind of move through the, the concern stages, and so we were ramping up all the expectations, and while we're on vacation, she had some medical problems, and in the fifth month, we lost that child. Now, I had known many couples that had gone through this, but because we'd never gone through it, I didn't really know uh, what that was like. I didn't know their pain. And I I remember I had thought before that, well, obviously that's sad. But I'd put a little asterisk next to that fact, and I thought, well, but it's not as sad as, and I thought of several other situations. And I remember going through that, and and one one of my overwhelming senses was, you had no idea what this was like. I mean, it was, it was a real death. I mean, the Part of when someone dies, part of what the death is, is, is it's all the future expectations and plans and hopes and dreams. I mean, they, they end at that point. So even though we'd, we'd never seen this child and we didn't have a history that is also part of a, of a death experience, someone who's, who's been born and has lived some, 
But we experienced that other part of the death experience. And it, I mean, it was, it was a big blow. So now whenever we hear of someone losing a child to miscarriage, it, I mean, it just hits us. And, you know, that 19 years later, sometimes we still tear up over that stuff. And, you know, the good thing about that, though, is that in that pain, we learn the words that are helpful and the words that aren't. Because whenever you experience pain, people come and say things to you and you realize, God bless them, they just don't know what to say. And so they say silly and not helpful things. And we've learned what to say and what not to say. Often what not to say is the most important thing. So a year after that experience, my wife was pregnant again. And someone trying to offer us comfort based on our previous experience told me this, and I still remember this. They said, Bevan, don't worry. God never allows the same thing to happen twice. And I remember thinking, I don't remember that verse. <laughs> By the way, if anyone ever tells you something confident like that, it sounds like, hmm, that sounds right. Ask them, oh, that's great. Where is that? And if they don't know, check it out. That wasn't in the Bible. Five months later, we lost our second one. We came to find out that our first two children were, well, they were a medical miracle. And I learned through that, and my wife and I learned through that, that only God's truth can comfort. People come up with silly little platitudes and nervous almost kind of sayings, and it, it just does not help. When we were going through that pain, God was comforting us so that. These are my favorite two words in these, in the, in these verses. So that. What that means is this had a purpose. I mean, imagine if just, the pain was just, that's just life. And there was no so that. There, there was no point to it. It was just, hey, you're on the planet. Life sucks. Deal with it. I mean, that'd be too much. But it says God comforts us so that we can learn how to comfort other people. Recently, in our church, there was a mother um, whose, whose child was just diagnosed with cancer, a five-year-old boy. And she came up after one of the services and started telling me and, and you know, obviously was, was tearing up and crying and asked, you know, if, if we could pray for her. Before I really had a chance to respond, almost in an instant, several mothers had seen this, and they kind of just rushed to the front. And I, I looked around, and there were kind of women surrounding us. And one of them was already tearing up. And I looked up at this mother, and I recognized her. Her child had just recently fought the cancer battle. It's still alive, but it was a long and horrible battle. And she knew exactly what that mother was facing. I could only imagine it. But as I looked in this mother's eyes and I saw her eyes filling with tears, I realized I was looking at the face of God in this situation. I mean, God was showing his face, face to this other woman through the face of another mother who had gone through what she was now facing. I saw the comfort and compassion of God in her eyes. There, there is no one better qualified than someone who's gone through pain to help comfort someone who's going through the same kind of pain. So what I'm saying is God wants to turn our struggles into ministry. 
at this stage in your life, you've already had struggles. And you will have more. But it's for a purpose. God wants the particular struggles you deal with to be a, a platform, a bridge, a, a ministry opportunity. So have you struggled with, let's say, the guilt of abortion? God wants you. You're perfect for helping people who have struggled with that. Have you gone through a painful breakup? God wants you. Has someone close to you died? God wants you. Did your family fall apart in divorce? God wants you. Have you been sexually abused? God wants you. Have you failed a class? Have you lost a job? God wants you. All around us are people who need to know the comfort of God. They are, well, dying to know the comfort of God. And you're perfectly suited to give it to them because you're the ambassador of God. And the message of God is that he loves and he cares and he has a purpose. And you can't deliver that message in a text, through email, through just words. Only someone who knows that and has experienced that can really communicate that. So God wants your pain. Secondly, God wants to use your pressure. Whatever you feel under pressure, God has a purpose behind that. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9 says this. Apostle Paul is writing this. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened. Here's, the, here's another so that. <laughs> this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, again, if you and I were looking for employees, say we, we were setting up a company and we're looking for employees uh, to help us carry out the mission, the market of this company, uh, and we want our employees to do a job, we'd look for someone qualified to do the job, right? I mean, that's, that's basic. If I'm trying to hire an accountant, I want someone who understands, you know, double entry accounting, credits and debits. They, they know these things because that's the job I need done. I want someone who's qualified for it. But when God goes looking for a worker, listen to this carefully, he looks for someone whose ability is far below the job that he gives them. It's very different than when we go looking for someone to do a job for us. God has a job in mind, and he goes looking for someone who's clearly not qualified for that job. Now, they're gifted, they've got abilities, but he hands out jobs that are way over our head. Why? Well, again, we have to understand, God doesn't need me or you to do any job. I mean, God is not thinking, man, I am overloaded. And I, I got to get some people to do some accounting for me. I got to get some people to, you know, run that church over there. I, I got to get some people to raise some money over here. I got I to get some people to whatever it is. Please understand, God can get things done. I mean, just look at creation. Not a single one of us did anything. And that's a pretty big job. Pretty amazing job. He did it all by himself. Our skills were not required to pull that off. 
Therefore, our skills are not needed to pull off anything else that God wants done. So why does he want to partner with us? Because what God wants us to do is he wants us to show that he can be trusted. That we can do. But that can only be done and can only be seen by others if we're in over our head. If he gives us a job that is completely within our capacity and we don't need to trust him at all, then whenever we accomplish that job, everyone's going to look at us and say, good job. But if he gives us a job that's over our ability and, and, and that job gets done and things happen through that job, people are going to look at us and say, how in the world did that happen? And then we get a chance to say, it wasn't just me. There's a God who's involved in all of this. See, the point of our assignments before God is never just the job itself, but who gets credit for it. You never want to do the assignment God's giving you with a sense that people are going to be amazed at you. If that's the case, you're, you're, you're twisted in your understanding of what God wants from you. You want to do the kind of work that people over and over again are amazed at God, not at you. In order for that to happen, you've got to be in over your head. This is what happened to Paul. He says, we were in a situation far beyond our ability. Next phrase. In fact, it was so bad we felt a sentence of death. And what he's saying is, we, we were pretty sure we're about to die. My guess is he's talking about a shipwreck here. Yep, we're going to die. Why? Why did this, did this situation just happen? No. Paul was doing what God wanted him to do. But it happened so that. So here's another one of those that's. There's a purpose behind it. That, he says, that I might rely on God who raises the dead. You see, if you get involved in a situation where it looks like you're going to die, I could, it doesn't matter what's on your resume. It doesn't matter what your GPA is. It doesn't matter how, how amazing you are, what corporate skills you have. If you're about to die, you're pretty sure you're going to die. All that stuff doesn't matter. Your only hope at that point is the God who raises the dead. You see what Paul was saying here? They, they'd, all, they'd lost all hope that they were going to be alive. Their only hope was, well, God's going to raise us from the dead. So God was the only one that was left for them to put their hope in. Death was certain. It was at that point that there was only one person left to put their trust in. The one who raises the dead. See, as long as we can put our faith in something other than God, we tend to do that. So God brings pressure to push us beyond our comfort zones until we're in a situation where he's the only possible solution we have left. And we fall on our knees and we say, oh, God, if you don't help me, I'm sunk. It's beyond hope. One of the things I've learned about God is um, he is not nearly as interested in my comfort as I am. I mean, he, he really continually pushes me outside of my comfort zone. And the purpose is so that he can take center stage and not me. I mean, as a parent, I've often found myself in situations far beyond my ability. As the pastor of Seabreeze, I've faced situations that are, I mean, I look at it and I think, I, I don't have a clue how to navigate this. And as I look back over the years, I, I literally am in awe 
at what God has done. God has demonstrated to me again and again and again that he can be relied on. He can be trusted. See, we are perfectly suited for the job of displaying God's trustworthiness because there's all kinds of situations that are far beyond our ability and in which we need him. So if you're in a situation where you're completely comfortable, you might want to step up. I'm not saying, you know, do something foolish. But look for a God-sized job. And when God brings you problems beyond your ability, don't panic. Fall on your knees and ask God to show himself faithful to you so that people can see that. So God wants our pain. He wants our pressure. And then he wants our plans. 2 Corinthians 1, 17 through 20. Paul says, when I plan this, he's talking about planning the trip. He planned a trip to Corinth. Now he's, now he's not going to be able to make it. So he says, when I plan this, do I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? Now let me warn you. You're going to start to nod off as I read through this. This is the best stuff. Okay? I'm just warning you because I tend to nod off when I read this the first time. This is good stuff. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Got it? Okay? <laughs> Memorize that. Apply it to your life. You'll be good to go. Okay? This is amazing. I mean, it... This is a passage that I, I had, I mean, I, it took me weeks to unravel this guy. But it is so amazing. Here's what he's talking about. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul had announced his plan to visit them. Now he's telling him, I can't make the trip. Why? He says, well, was it because I planned the trip lightly and hadn't really thought it through? No. That's not why. I mean, he's saying, I really had planned to visit you. Well, Paul, why aren't you? Well, clearly God said no to the trip. Now, we don't know how that occurred. Maybe it was the circumstances God used to just block the thing. Or maybe God spoke to Paul as he did and said, no, I don't want you to go there. I want you to go here instead. We don't know why. All we know is that Paul had planned to go, and now he's not going. The point of this passage is, if you're going to partner with God, you've got to go about planning very differently than if you can do life all on your own. Paul says, I didn't plan in a worldly manner. What does a worldly manner mean? Well, in the New Testament, worldly means people who do their thinking and living, and they don't factor God into the plans and what they do at all. They're, they're worldly. It means for them, this world is all there is. There's, there's no God involved. It's just me and the set of circumstances. That's planning in a worldly manner. God's not a factor. That planning is described in these four words. Yes, yes, and no, no. What does that mean? Well, that's what a plan is, isn't it? A plan is a set of yeses and nos. Yes, we're going to do this. Yes, we're going to do this. No, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to do this. So when you plan in a worldly manner where you don't factor God in, you plan yes, and you expect yes to happen because you planned it. Or you, you say no, we don't want that to happen, and you expect no to happen. That's the final word. Well, let me ask you, how does that work? Have you ever had a yes plan 
suddenly turn into a no? Or a no turn into a yes? <laughs> That's, that happens all the time. Why? We're not the only ones planning. God himself is planning. And when God's plans intersect our plans, guess who wins? God's plans. So we've said yes, and if God says no, no happens. And if we say, no, I don't want that, and I'll never do that, and God says, yes, you will, yes happens. Okay? So it's, it's not yes, yes. Just because you plan yes doesn't mean yes is going to happen. Just because you plan no doesn't mean no is going to happen. So then the logical conclusion for us tend to be, well, then I'm just not going to plan. Because God's going to mess with my plans, I'm not going to plan anymore. But Paul says, no, our message to you is not yes and no. A modern translation would be, our, plan, our message to you is not whatever. Okay, Do whatever you want to do. No, that's not what he's saying. Go ahead and plan. He said, the message to you, the message of Christ, he says, is always yes. What does that mean? Well, look at the story of Christ. Just read through the story and, and keep track of how many plans got changed by the people involved with Christ, by Christ himself. I mean, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, please, no. And the Father says, yes. And as Jesus is being crucified, every one of his disciples around him are saying, no, no. And at the resurrection, everyone throughout all of history says, yes, brilliant. I mean, his whole life story is a series of twists and turns that you would never have seen coming. And what Paul is saying is if you learn anything by following Christ, you've, you've come to understand that we make our plans and God does what is right. The message is always yes in Christ. What he's saying is everything that happens is because God is saying yes. Yes. So he's saying, look at Christ. What God plans is for our long-term good. So, so what's our role then in this? Are we just pawns in God's great chess game? No. No, we got such a great role in this. Our role is in the flows of all the yeses and nos to our plan making is to speak amen to the glory of God. What does that mean? The word amen means basically to support. That's why, you know, at the end of prayers, we say amen. It's kind of an exclamation point. Yes. On the end of the prayer. God, make it so. Amen. So on the leading edge of time, God is making firm the plans he has and our role is to support those plans with a hearty amen rather than resist or foolishly fight those plans. So what this means literally is you're, you've planned no, and to your horror, yes is happening. You have an opportunity to say, God, amen. Or you're saying, yes, I want this to happen. I really want this. And God says, no. You get a chance to say, amen, God. And when you do that, when you say amen to what God is doing, you bring glory to the Father. You know what the word glory means? The, probably the best definition is, is to turn heads. <laughs> I mean, we live near the beach, and sometimes I'm driving on PCH, and the sunsets are just, I mean, it's dangerous to drive. Because everyone's like, 
I mean, that's what, that's, what, that's what God's glory does. I mean, if God showed up in all of his glory, every head would be, in fact, we're told every knee will bow. That'll be the bowing, not necessarily just because of a choice. It'll be kind of like, well, if an earthquake hit and we all fell down, it'd be that kind of bowing. I mean, just in the presence, we'll just fall on our faces before him. Every head will be turned to him. But you see, right now, God doesn't show up in visible ways like that. But one of the ways we can bring him glory, one of the ways we can turn the heads of other people around us his direction is when our plans are falling apart and by our lives and by our words, we're saying, amen, God. When people see that, they think there's something else going on. I mean, try this sometimes. Just, if you're in a group of people, uh, just look off into the distance at something and start going like this. What does everyone start to do? What? What, do, what do you, what? I mean, I've noticed you up, you know, some of you trying to clapping thing sometime. You get everyone clapping in the cafeteria, you know. And what are we, why are we all clapping? You know? Nobody knows. Same thing happens. When, when, when people see you look to God, they start, what you, what's he looking at? Why are they doing that? I mean, their lives are falling apart. What, why are they okay? Why are they saying amen? They're, we're turning heads God's direction. You see, we are perfectly suited for this job of glorifying God because we have our own wills and we make our own plans. If we were just pawns or robot-like creatures, we really couldn't bring glory to God with our lives because our yeses would be automatic, not freely chosen yeses. I mean, just imagine... If you create a robot that is programmed to say, you're great, is that a real statement about your value? No, that's kind of pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> so God didn't create robots. He created real, willful, choosing people who make plans. We say yes and no on a daily basis. So we have to wrestle with God's yeses and no's. And when God says no to our yeses and yes to our no's, we face a decision. We can say amen to God, you're great. Or we can get mad at God and accuse him of being bad. In that moment, we either honor him or defame him. Now, as long as God's executing our plans, there's no chance to bring him glory. It's when our plans disagree with his that we get a chance to have our amen really mean something. Now, I have to be honest with you, amen is never or rarely the first response when God's plans trump ours. My normal first response is, oh, no, not amen. Oh, no. So I've had to work on this response in my life when God says no to something I want and yes to something I don't want. I mean, I, I've had to act, and I, I still have to verbally practice sometimes just saying the words, Amen, God. Amen. You know, in our church just a few weeks ago, we found out, I was aware of one situation, but it, within that week when we announced the one change, I found out that, there, that three of our staff, basically half of our staff, are transitioning out of their position. I mean, they're all for good reasons. It's not a bad thing. But all of a sudden, oh, no. You know, I've, I've got to scramble. We've got to scramble. And I remember thinking, well, God, um, 
I, w I would not have done them all in one week. <laughs> I'm just saying, it seems to me that if you space these things out, the organization has a little better chance to recover in, in the process of funding, you know, but amen. I mean, it was kind of a weak one at first, but as you go along, you just have to keep working. God, amen. You're up to something. You don't do this like this unless you've got something amazing planned. I can't wait to see what it is. I'm really interested in seeing what it is. <laughs> amen. Amen. You see, we have a chance to honor God whenever life takes a sudden turn and our plans are all derailed. We get to say amen. So God wants you and God wants me. I'm going to put that image there again. Why? Well, because we're perfectly suited to bring comfort, the comfort of God to people, because we have experience with pain. He wants us because we are perfectly suited to display how competent God is, because we're not. I mean, if God can do something through us, how amazing is that? And he does. And we are perfectly suited to partner with God because an amen from us when all of our plans fall apart is a head-turning statement of honor to him. Only we can do that. And that's why the, the hand of God would descend from the heavens and point to you and point to me and say, I want you. Would you be reconciled to me and then join me? in the greatest search and rescue effort this world will ever know? You're exactly the kind of person I'm looking for. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we are humbled and really, quite honestly, stunned by the fact that you want us. Maybe we've heard in our families that um, we have all kinds of flaws and all kinds of problems, but you've told us that you want us. Maybe right now we're discouraged and thinking that we're in over our heads and we, we don't realize that we've just put down on a resume one of the things that qualifies to be, to be partners with you. So Father, we, we thank you for your love for us, for your pursuit of us. And we ask that you would turn our pain into ministry. You would turn our pressure into something that shows how amazing you are. And you would turn our shattered plans into a statement of your glory. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.